This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Chiesi is a family-owned, research-focused pharmaceutical company. And as a sustainable company accredited with both a B Corp and Benefit Corporation status, Chiesi is making global changes that benefit patients, providers, and healthcare organizations with forward-looking and impactful initiatives. Chiesi appreciates the integral role that clinical pharmacists play in patient care and are proud to support this community. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast, a partner of the ACP Critical Care PRN, and I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Day two in the books, 2024 SCCM Congress, I would say it has been a pretty good success so far. Clinical content, of course, uh, SCCM is second to none. Um, recording this on Monday, January 22nd. And uh, yesterday we had a little bit of an intro as to uh, some conference overviews. Today is going to feature a uh, discussion um, with three amazing guests. So we start off with Marilyn Bullock, one of uh, the 2024 SCCM Congress co-chairs. It's an unbelievable discussion on her experience, all this role entails, what we can do to help ensure we submit a successful session proposals, all those types of things. So it's it's really fun. Definitely should be a must listen for all. And then two more pharmacist star researchers join me to highlight their star abstracts. So Kayla Koch from uh, Geisinger Health discusses her research study, the impact of early initiation of phenobarbital for alcohol withdrawal syndrome in the critically ill. And then Caitlin Brown returns to discuss her research, a multi-center study of pulmonary embolism patients treated with reduced or full dose alteplase. Great episode today for a great conference. So let's get going. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
And we have a very, very special guest. We are joined with the Pharmacist Congress co-chairperson. That's correct. It's Marilyn Bullock, Associate Clinical Professor and Director of Strategic Operations at the Auburn University Harrison School of Pharmacy. Marilyn, how are you? Is this like your one break in the four days total? I had a little <laughs> bit of a break yesterday. I was able to eat lunch yesterday. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a very packed schedule, but I don't think I would, I would trade it for anything. So I, what I'm hoping to do with this discussion is kind of just talk a little bit about what the co-chair does, what your responsibilities have done, and then what are some of the things, right, if, if we, the listeners, or somebody is wanting input or changes, what does that look like? So I think first things first, like, how did you even become one of the co-chairs? Like, what does that process look like? To be honest, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I... I've been on the program committee for a number of years, and the president of the society is the person who is responsible for appointing the the co-chairs. And they're appointed several years in advance so they can kind of get some training and learn from it. Um, I'm actually not the original co-chair. There were two other pharmacists before me that stepped aside. They took jobs in industry. That that kind of becomes a conflict of in- interest, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I have been around the program committee so long. I'm the creative. I don't wouldn't say I necessarily know every, all these huge names, or if I do, I forget them. But I'm the creative one. I'm the one who comes up with these weird titles that you see on all of our topics and stuff. And so I, I just have have worked with our staff partners and stuff like that so long. So when the opening came available, um, you know, I had talked to them about, you know, this would be, this would be, this is a bucket list for me. You know, everybody has their career bucket list things and being Congress co-chair is, is one of mine, this and board of pharmacy. So when the opening came, I was very fortunate that our staff partner went to the president's like this person would be, do a really good job. And it makes sense, right, in the, in the opening director of strategic operations, right? It makes sense what's more strategic than literally trying to plan this whole thing, right? Oh, it is, it is an undertaking. It takes years. I don't think a lot of people realize the planning for 2025's program began last September. It, it yeah. takes about a year and a half, really, to to plan all the new stuff. Um, and that's that's just the program. That doesn't take into consideration all the, the little things of Congress, like, you know, who's going to be our special guest at opening session and, you know, where are we going to put the round tables? It, it, yeah. You know, what, what special food are we going to have out there on the first day? I mean, there's a lot of little intricate details. And so it we have to start very early, which can be hard because you're like, what's going to be timely a year and a half from now you know you don't know trying to predict the future it sounds like so what so the role of a co-chairperson for congress is what exactly are you like running everything like what what are your like responsibilities in short yeah i mean so we have a i have to say we got a fantastic program committee and we have so many wonderful people on there, including a lot of pharmacists, and they are absolutely amazing. They So when we meet, we work in teams in different subject areas, and we make these proposals. We come up with, we propose names, right? Um, and they're just proposals. They're, they're the same proposals you could make. We could The really, ones that we could submit that right you now, could right? submit right yep. now, absolutely. It, once everything closes, it, you know, many 
I guess if your listeners have probably been a peer reviewer of some sort. So these, all of these sessions get peer reviewed um, by us and it, we, we grade them, we critique them. I'm not sure I knew that. Yeah, they're all, it, there's a very structured rubric that we go through and uh, it's very intentional. And then so there's a lot of data analysis that goes into, we look at what scored really well and why and in what categories. And so there's a, there is sort of a slight template. You know, we can yeah. have this many sepsis talks and we can have this many well-being and this many pharmacology talks so it, it, to make it structured. SCCM's so diverse. There's so, I like hearing about drugs. Yep. But some of my colleagues love immunology and we got to make something for everybody, right? That's what we do here. And I don't think I realized exactly where the holes are. It, it, so the first thing that goes on is we figure out what scored well. And to be fair, the co-chairs do have a little bit of selfish motivation. You know, if they really want something, <laughs> they really want to push yeah. through something, they can. But it has to go on the grid. And so that then once it finally gets on the grid, we have to be able to make sure, you know, we took it and, and we took it off the grid and put it into those, you know, all the sepsis talks, all the pharmacology talks, everything, and made sure it made sense. You know, what's because we, we didn't want it to be random. You know, we wanted to make sure what you heard on Sunday was more important for you to hear on Sunday than Tuesday, and it flowed. But then you got to put it back and make sure there are rooms for everything and people aren't double booked and all of that. So it's a lot of logistics that go go into it and you know it's interesting when people make these proposals they come up with these crazy names like the first person I didn't realize the co-chairs invite the thought leaders or the keynote speakers I didn't realize that I thought they went out to the regular speakers like when we get invited for concurrent oh no it's got to be personal but the first person, the very first task I got when I took this role on was to email, I won't say who it was, but a, a very important former <laughs> government figure. And I'm like, do you, you have his email? Because I don't have his email. Um, and I ended up having to f- <laughs> never, uh, we got his, his assistant's email and it, but they never responded. I finally went through his wife. Um, unfortunately, they were unable to speak, but we were able, but still getting all of these important people that you see, that is not something that the, the staff partners do. That's something that we do. And that's intimidating, yeah. uh, very intimidating because these are extraordinarily um, successful people in their individual realms. So, Those are the email messages that sit in your drafts for 48 hours as you critique every word that you're trying to send, right? The, 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 I feel like the, the higher up, the, the more very well-known people, you tend to sweat the emails a little more, um, because you're a little nervous to, to talk to them and reach out and things. They're also the emails once you get a response you don't get rid of because you're like, I might need this person one day. You know, and I got their personal hotmail <laughs> <laughs> email down the line. I don't know what I'll need it for, but it's in my, yeah. you know, because these are, and to be fair, a lot of them, rightly so, their email, their contact, their phone numbers, they're not public. Yep. Right? Yep. You can't um, Google them. And so you, you have to make, we have to make sure somebody knows how to get in touch with them, which is, you know, I have a little bit of imposter syndrome, and so that that was, I think, the most intimidating part. That and contacting the journal editors, 
right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've been in academia a long time, and I've, I'm published, but I'm not published in New England Journal of Medicine, and here I am trying to, or, or The Lancet, and here I am trying to introduce myself to these, these editors of the journals that we're just like in, you know, all over, and trying to have like a normal communication with them. Uh, again, those are the, the emails that are will be forever saved. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know that I'll ever use them, but it, I guess it's the own sense of coolness yeah. that I got out of it. Well, I think we all may experience imposter syndrome at one point, but I can say based on this Congress, that is not the case to the person sitting to my left here. So each year at Congress, right, they, um, at one of like the honorary lectures, the thought leader lectures, um, the next year's co-chairs kind of get announced. They come out. That's kind of, so that happens, you know, the year before. So I know you weren't maybe necessarily involved, but how much of that work is actually being done before they get announced? Or is it just the work starts kind of once this Congress is done? No, it is. They have been on the job for over a year. So the society actually, we know who 2026's co-chairs are going to be. So as long as nothing happens to them, we know who they're going to be. They've already been picked. 2027, I imagine, will be picked very soon. Um, and the thought is there's a lot to this. There's a lot of like little things that you have to know. And SCCM does a, a really good job of having them in on the conversation. The program committee meets twice a year in person in Chicago. We have lots of Zoom calls in between them. And so they have been uh, participating in all of these conversations and listening to it so that even if they're not contributing or making decisions, they're at least they're aware of what they're going to have to do when it's their time. So the 2025 co-chairs, they may have just been announced to the world, but they have actually been, like I told you, that work started back in September, and they have been actively working at getting everything ready uh, since that time. What a what a process and commitment to try to to try to make sure that this conference goes off without a hitch for all of us. That's really, really cool. Um, I mean, I think I could speak for everybody. You know, I've talked a little bit about some of the, the daily episodes, but just like very common with SCCM, the content has been incredible at the SCCM Congress. It always has. It's amazing. What goes into creating this conference schedule? You know, you mentioned like things are planned out very far in advance. You're essentially predicting and creating these talks 18 months in advance? Some of them. So yeah. what, we do take a kind of the feel of last year and one of the things that a lot of the attendees last year said is we miss more science you know when I was coming up you know as a resident everything I remember coming here and we did see a lot of what we've seen at this conference these are these are the innovators these are the big people that have wrote these practice changing things and you're just you're almost it's like a celebrity, right? I yes. mean, for us, it is. I mean, it, yep. it, these are our celebrities. And I'm just going, this is the coolest conference I've ever been to in my life, right? And after COVID, you know, it it, it was a little bit harder to arrange some of that. And yeah. people missed it. They wanted uh, less review and more new, right? But a lot more science, more innovation. And even though we had we had a record number of proposals that we had to shift through last year, a record number. And we that's only, great news. That's fantastic. We only have so many spots, right? Yeah, we have 99 yeah. spots for, you know, to sort out like 400 proposals. And 
then we still had to find holes for, but what about this session that wasn't proposed, but we need? You know, we had one today where we had innovators. These are people, these are the inventors, if you, if you want to call them that, themselves that are creating this technology that we, we're, we're going to be using in our yep. ICUs in just a few a few years. It was the people who created themselves and they were there and you could talk to them. And that was not, you can't, you can't propose that. That was just a, an idea that popped up in a meeting. And someone's yeah. like, well, I know so-and-so and I know so-and-so. And it, it all came together, you know. And then um, other things that, you know, we thought we'd had a perfect schedule. And then this, the society sort of told us, hey, we're going to be releasing a record number of guidelines <laughs> uh, and a record number of position papers and other yeah. these Again, groundbreaking, innovative things. We can't not have a spot for that, right? <laughs> well, and, and Judy Jacoby came on, and she was talking about how great you, like, like you all essentially, it sounds like, created a spot for her is we how did. it was, is how she was describing it. We did. We had to, we had to move some things away, like around, to yeah. make it work. Um, we're lucky this year we're trying out the bonus session. So, like, we had some things that are just virtual. They're not here at Congress. Those are some hidden gems. They are. They are fantastic. We, I was lucky enough to talk with uh, three of the pharmacist speakers to highlight a little bit, make sure that everyone knew about that digital Congress. And I'll tell you what, everyone needs to be sure to go through and look at that. If you registered for Congress, you'll get in it because there are some great, great talks. I think so. And from a professional development standpoint, I could spend days listening to these, and I'm thinking like my students, my trainees. These are these are great to take oh, that's to a them. Good point. Yeah, you know, I mean, they're going to be recorded. Not everybody can get to Congress. It's a great way to sort of share it with the people you work with because we were very intentional at who we picked to speak to. Right, um, we wanted to to have a good mix of you know giving some of more junior people an opportunity, but at the same time, we wanted to bring back. The celebrity aspect. You know, these are very important people. These people who have been around for a while. They've got a lot to share, a lot of a good wis- uh, wisdom. They're do- so you're right. They're hidden gems. I hope everybody listens to them. Well, and I mean, the, the other thing you mentioned, like the, the speakers and things, SCCM does such a good job on making these multidisciplinary. Very rarely are you going to see a session that is exclusively led by physicians, exclusively led by nurses, exclusively led by pharmacists, unless that is their focused session. And there are a couple examples, but that's what I think is so cool because those disciplines, it feels like we can get in our silos. And I always learn so much from the other disciplines and their perspectives. So uh, one, you know, it's interesting that you say that. We get a lot of these proposals that come in, and they are so very physician-centric, pharmacy-centric. They're one discipline. They get rejected very quickly, or they get retooled very quickly. Um, The society does have a uh, sort of a dedication to being multidisciplinary. It's very rare that you're, when we're thinking about who's going to speak, we're thinking not only discipline in terms of we need to have people at the table. We love not just having pharmacy, nursing, physicians, the respiratory therapists, yep. our, our nutrition colleagues. There's so many people we love having. We're getting more paramedics. I mean, but also thinking about geog- geographic diversity. You know, we're not going to have everybody from the same institution or even the same part of the country. Uh, we're starting to branch out. I'm at a community teaching hospital. It is not the same as the you know, these big academic medical centers. I bring something different to the table than someone would that's at 
you know, one of these large facilities for sure, we really do start to think about those pieces so that you, you have those fresh perspectives because in reality, it's great if you go listen to a session and you, you get this education, but if you can't take it back to where you work, if it's not practical for in, in some part because of where you work, it, it was, it was great to listen to. You might've enjoyed it, but you're not going to be able to use it. Yeah. So that's great advice about, you know, you talk about these session proposals and if you're coming up with ideas, if you're having an all pharmacist medication talk, that's, that's going to get the Kenbin Mutombo, uh -uh, the finger wag. So what other, are there other advice for pharmacists or even, you know, just SECM members on submitting new ideas and content if there's things they want to, to see for future conferences? You know, that's the best question because we get asked that all of the time. And my name being the first on the region emails <laughs> that went out. I got all of the angry, why didn't my session get get accepted or why did you rework it or, or whatever. You were the sorry reply I, I instead was, of the reply I all. Was, That's tough. I was. Oh. And so, um, you know, it, it has to be, unless you can make a case, and, and there are a few, there's a very narrow few where you can make a very specific case of why this needs to be all disciplinary, but honestly, very rarely should it be. I mean, at least bring in a moderator who's different, right? Um, it also, again, if you bring in somebody from the same geographic area, we're not, it, it, we're going to break that up. Yeah. Um, so it needs to not, you know, we'll see lots of proposals where they're all from the same institution. The biggest one it, it, that people would be so helpful, they'll pick these random names and I would love to get that speaker, but we can't get that speaker, you know? <laughs> and so they have a speaking fee that's $30,000. Almost all of our speakers are SCCM members, and they do it for free. Oh, Almost so all. Cool. I know. And so we don't, we're not doing the big budget that some of the other, you know, other big comp yep, Yeah, yep. we just don't have it. And so we're very fortunate to that. Members want to give back, right? They want to participate. So when you, you're putting these proposals in, don't just like, oh, I think so-and-so. Well, there's lots of people I think would be, fat. you know, Joe DePiro, you know, from a <laughs> pharmacy standpoint. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I think he would be a fantastic. Is he really going to come, though? <laughs> you know, have you talked to him? Do you even know him? And so when we get these proposals and we try to track these people down and, it, getting speakers to commit sometimes it would be surprised more surprisingly difficult than you would think so we you you have to have backup speakers you got to have a plan b in there so when we look at proposals that don't have backup speakers we're almost hesitant to go there because we know at least one of those speakers or moderators is going to say no we know at least one of them is and so not having those backups it is just i will rate that low every time um it, but making sure that you've talked to these people, that you know who they are, that you've gone at least gone on YouTube and make sure that they can speak, <laughs> I think is something. Sometimes you want to make sure that you vet them a little yeah. bit before you propose them. So, well, what great idea? What great um, you know advice for someone who's truly had to dig through some of those? And you know, you mentioned um, you know things that are surprising. Um, you know the. You talked about the um, the kind of big session leaders um, from that perspective, but is anything else 
from this process? Did anything else like stand out as you were going through this that was really surprising, that was different than you expected, you know, that you knew was happening before you were just kind of attending Congress? Um, I didn't realize. So there's several sessions at Congress that are must-haves. They are, we have contracts in place with other critical care societies or other uh, organizations, and so they have to fill a hole, and they have to cover certain content. Um, there, we have several of our best concurrent sessions are award presentations. You know, these are people who have done amazing things. They're getting an award. But we have a very narrow criteria of, like, who can get that award, and we're like, that's, some of them were hard to find, you know? <laughs> like, you, it's you very... Had, you had 10 options, I'm and like, then as you go through yeah, all the requirements... <laughs> I remember one, and I won't say which one it was, there was one where we we finally found someone that was was and is, is absolutely perfect, and their, their session is going to be amazing. But you can't tell them up front. They're getting an award. <laughs> and so, you, but you have to get them to come, right? So you get them to come and agree to a different session so that then we can be like, congrats. Because once we make sort of the recommendation for this person for this award council has to approve it so so but we want to make sure they're going to come before we agree to put their name before council and so there's this back and forth between one of the award winners and we're like hey are you would you be willing to come we kind of have a talk i might come i haven't decided well i think you know and you can't tell them straight out so like we you gotta trust us this would be in your we really need you to come. And they're like, well, I think about it. What topic? And we gave it to, ah, I'm not really good for that topic. Is you we are. I mean, no, like, no you really are. And we switched it. We felt, we were like, okay, would you take, it was a pro con. We're like, would you take the other side? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and it was just a bad, cause this was like the perfect person for this yeah. award. It's just things like that. It's the convert. You don't realize is the co-chair how much of that personal communication you have to do with a lot of these speakers. You know, we revised a lot of things at Congress this year. We, you know, if some, some of you who are listening who went, you'll notice we have, we have a whole room that doesn't have PowerPoint anymore. It's, it's novel. And they're putting some things in there that honestly they don't need it. You know, they don't need um, it for a certain award ceremony. They don't really need it for, like, how to become a fellow. But we had some sessions. We're like, well, they're regular sessions. We had to go back and, and work with those presenters. Be like, can you do more, like, application-based, you know, CE, like, group work, case presentation, stuff that you don't – you're not used to seeing at big national meetings um, and sort of work with them individually. And they were absolutely wonderful. But, again – not something the staff partners handle. It's yeah. something that we had to handle individually. Oh, wow. Yeah, that definitely is surprising. I didn't right. realize that. And that's probably, did you find that in, like, your peer review process? Is that, like, when you're going through it, or is it some other way? It was, So what it was is they're, they're put in as normal sessions, and we had tagged them as, oh, this would be a really good session. But now all of a sudden we're putting them in a room that doesn't have PowerPoint. Uh, okay. And it's like, you're, all right, you're trying to can, shuffle you, right can yeah. you tweak this session? Like if we <laughs> say yes, could you do it without PowerPoint? And the other thing that um, was very interesting is being the, being the person that people get mad at <laughs> when when their session didn't get accepted or when it got rejected and, and having to be very – thick-skinned and diplomatic because we we did we had a and we unfortunately couldn't integrate we could have had five more amazing meetings with the proposals that we had we just didn't have time one thing I'm really excited about one proposal 
that I'm really excited about is uh, one of my colleagues, Frank O'Connell, he, he proposed this session about dogs and these canines. And so we were, again, going back to, this is a pro dog podcast. (laughs) Well, we're going to have dogs and these are, these are therapy dogs for us. And they take them into, uh, set, you know, hospitals where they've under, where the clinicians have undergone something traumatic. Either they've cared for like an active shooter or maybe there's a massive tornado or something. And I think I have dogs at my facility for the patients, but these are for us. And so they're bringing the dogs, you know? And so it was, it was so nice. I worked so hard with Frank to get those, those dogs here. And, but you have to be able to think outside the box and think about fun stuff yep. like that too so Marilyn this was unbelievable thanks for not only all you've done as in your role as co-chair for the 2024 congress but obviously too shining a light on some of the things that pharmacists and others can do to make their proposals or ideas uh, have a higher success rate or higher probability of success so that's awesome Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate you squeezing out probably one of your two breaks in the four days to to come on and talk with us. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This episode of Pharmacy to Dose is proudly sponsored by Chiesi. Providing innovative pharmacologic therapies for over 85 years, Chiesi is committed to supporting the clinical pharmacist community and the patients you serve. To learn more, visit chiesi.pharmacytodose.com. Now let's feature two pharmacist star research abstracts from the 2024 SCCM Congress, starting with Kayla Koch's research with early initiation of phenobarbital. Then Caitlin Brown will discuss her multicenter research looking at alteplase dosing in pulmonary embolism. And we're very lucky to be joined by another pharmacist star researcher, Kayla Koch, critical care pharmacist and assistant director of pharmacy at Geisinger Medical Center. And the title of her star research project is The Impact of Early Initiation of Phenobarbital for Alcohol Withdrawal Syndrome in the Critically Ill. Kayla, welcome. How are you? I'm great, Nick. Thank you. So before you tell me, tell us about your study, one question that I had how do you find out that you win the Star Research Award? Like what, like what comes with that? So I got an email from SCCM letting me know that my abstract was accepted for presentation at the conference. And then I received a separate email notifying me that it was accepted for the Star Research presentation. Um, they also included some information on what the expectations are when you do get that uh, Star Research Award. So we had to record our slides prior to conference so that they're available for everyone to listen to on demand. Um, In addition to preparing the slides for the presentation at conference to be projected on the Star Research Theater. All right, so how did the recording go? Do you, are you, are we about to have a new uh, podcast host in our future here? uh, Two of them, actually. (laughs) Two French Bulldogs were very highly involved in the creation of the recording for this uh, presentation. What are, what are their names? We're pro Bulldog podcast as a Butler grad here. (laughs) Tallulah and Delilah. Two Southern Bells. Those are great. That's, that's (laughs) a great description. Okay. So the real reason we're here, tell us about your, your study looking at the use of phenobarbital in your patients. Sure. Just to give you a little bit of background about how this project came to light. Um, Prior to 2021, our management of alcohol withdrawal syndrome at our institution was based solely on provider discretion. Um, So we recognized that we really had an opportunity and a need to do better for our patients with alcohol withdrawal syndrome. 
um, which is what prompted us to create our standardized alcohol withdrawal syndrome order set, which included early initiation of phenobarbital in addition to symptom-driven lorazepam based on the Minnesota Detoxification Scale score. Um, so we wanted to evaluate our outcomes after implementation of the standardized, or standardized order set, which is what led to this retrospective study. Um, so it was a pre-post retrospective study that occurred between the time frame of 2012 and 2018 for our pre-protocol cohort, and then 2021 and 2022 for our post-protocol cohort. Um, we included patients if they were 18 years and older, admitted to the ICU with alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and they had to have received at least one dose of lorazepam or phenobarbital to be included in the study. Um, we excluded patients who were transferred from an outside facility and also those who had evidence of illicit substance abuse. Um, so overall, we had 163 patients in our pre-protocol cohort and 120 patients in our post-protocol cohort. They were average age of 56 years. Majority of them were male. Um, we do have a mixed ICU population, so most of our patients were medical ICU patients, but we did have representation from the surgical population as well, um, mounting to about 30 to 40 percent of our patients. Um, and just one notable baseline demographic was in terms of their admission diagnosis, about 20 percent in our pre-protocol group were admitted solely because of alcohol withdrawal syndrome or intoxication, compared to 9.7 percent post-protocol. So they could have been admitted for any diagnosis, but they, were, they did have alcohol withdrawal syndrome while they were in the ICU. Um, our primary outcome that we looked at was the need for mechanical ventilation. And we did not see a statistically significant difference between our populations. However, we did look at the need for mechanical ventilation in terms of the indications. Um, so when we did stratify by indication, we found a difference in the percentage of patients who required mechanical ventilation for refractory agitation or somnolence that occurred during their admission. So we thought this was a great finding because that was the indication that could have been impacted by our alcohol withdrawal syndrome management protocol. Um, so pre-protocol, there were 20% of patients that were intubated for refractory agitation, and that decreased to 8.5% post-protocol. Um, and then in terms of somnolence, 13% were, were intubated for somnolence pre-protocol, and that was decreased to 1% post-protocol. So that was pretty, a pretty significant finding for us, especially because when you do initiate phenobarbital, one of the concerns is over-sedation, and we did not find that. Um, so that was a positive finding there. Uh, we did also look at a variety of secondary outcomes. The ones that we found with statistical and clinical significance were our benzodiazepine utilization. So that was significantly reduced post-protocol. Um, it was 19.8 milligrams pre-protocol of lorazepam equivalent compared to 2.2 milligrams lorazepam equivalent post-protocol. Um, and that was for their overall ICU stay, but when we stratified by day, their daily utilization was also significantly reduced. Um, we saw a decrease in our hospital length of stay by about three days a decrease in our incidence of hospital-acquired pneumonia, um, delirium, seizures during admission, and the use of restraints. We also looked at uh, ICU length of stay, duration of mechanical ventilation, and 30-day mortality, but did not find a difference um, that was statistically significant in those outcomes. I love that you highlighted those baseline characteristics because I think a lot of these studies look at exclusively medical, maybe exclusively surgical, even exclusively like trauma surgical. So um, 
for those who have the kind of classic med surge all comer ICU, the idea that that's what this was like studied and looked at and is is really cool a novel a novel idea definitely. Um, you know, you mentioned the benzodiazepine use came down. Would you say that that benzos were the big workhorse pre pro in that like pre protocol era that 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 they were doing the heavy lifting? Definitely. And because it was provider discretion, we saw a variety of different management strategies. So it could have ranged from just the low dose PRN benzodiazepine, which would prove to be inadequate for those severe alcohol withdrawal patients, all the way up to a continuous infusion benzodiazepine. Um, and one of the nice things with this study is we did some predictive analytics, and we found that in terms of delirium, every one milligram of lorazepam exposure increased the probability of delirium by 57%. So we weren't doing our patients any justice by giving them these high-dose continuous benzodiazepines, which is the premise for adding that phenobarbital to try to have a benzodiazepine-sparing effect. Um, and it also knowing that even giving them one milligram of lorazepam increases their odds of delirium, promoting change in practice after we got the results of this study. Wow, what incredible data analytic statistics. That's awesome. And what a cool, what a cool thing to be able to like drop on rounds whenever <laughs> like someone is trying to do all that. Because that's that's hard data and that's and they can't say, well that's not our patients, right? Because that literally yeah, is, it your is our patients. patients. Definitely. That's awesome. Um, what would you say and and maybe you don't know, but anecdotally, why was there such a difference in phenobarbital use in that pre- protocol versus post-protocol use? Was it just comfort, knowledge, or was there something else that kind of changed? Yeah, I think comfort and knowledge, you know, phenobarbital is a really old drug, but it's kind of like old is new now. So there's been <laughs> recent data. There were two studies that really prompted us to look at the utilization of phenobarbital um, in our patient population. And it took a lot of education and reassuring that we aren't going to oversedate our patients, that this actually should minimize the benzodiazepines that they need and, and not cause oversedation. So um, those two previous studies fortunately demonstrated that as well. So it helped us to gain buy-in um, for the initiation of our standardized management. How um, how would you say the um, the ICU unit has like how did they take this data when you when you talk to them about it? I think they're all really excited because yeah. I mean it was a team effort in implementing this order set. So I think seeing the fruit of your labor and your efforts um, and the positive impact that we had on patients was really nice. What a good point because obviously in something like alcohol withdrawal takes everybody right. It takes the the physicians, the advanced practice providers, nurses, pharmacists, probably even respiratory therapists and things like that. So really cool. Um, for those who, who are listening and they're very intrigued, right? Their ears are, are perked up a little bit. Can you talk a little bit like about the protocol, IV to PO doses, that, that sort of thing? Yeah. Definitely. So once our patient has alcohol withdrawal syndrome, they're immediately started on an IV dose of of phenobarbital, one-time loading dose of 260 milligrams. That first dose is always given intravenously just to be able to gain rapid control of their alcohol withdrawal symptoms. Um, then the patients are started on a maintenance regimen, which can be oral or IV, depending on the patient. Um, so 97.2 milligrams three times a day for two days, followed by 64.8 milligrams three times a day for two days, and then 32.4 milligrams three times a day for two days. So it's a six-day taper. If the patient improves rapidly and is discharged before then, we don't continue it on discharge. It's stopped on their discharge date. Um, it also includes 
symptom-driven as-needed lorazepam based on their MIND score. So the dose of that can range from 1 to 4 milligrams IV, depending on the severity of their MIND score that's done by the nurse. Well, Kayla, what a what an awesome project from you and your and your Geisinger colleagues. Um, appreciate you not only um, recording and doing all the things that come with the Star Research Award, but then coming on and being able to talk a little bit more and dissect into it for for those who maybe aren't in Phoenix. So that's great. We appreciate you. Thanks, Nick. The pleasure's mine. I feel like I'm talking to a celebrity. That's absolutely not true. <laughs> That's not true. The thanks is all on this other side, so I appreciate it. Thank you. And we're very lucky to be joined by another pharmacist star researcher, Caitlin Brown, critical care pharmacist at the Mayo Clinic. And she's presenting her research, uh, her star research abstract here, a multi-center study of pulmonary embolism patients treated with reduced or full dose alteplase. But the kicker is this isn't just an abstract because this is also published in print in critical care medicine in January's issue. Caitlin, thank you for joining us. How are you? Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here with you. Um, so tell us a little bit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a few questions because this is a really great study idea. But tell us a little bit about what all went into like the study design and then ultimately what you guys kind of found. Yeah, great. This is a multi-center study. So it's admittedly been in the works since like 2019. Uh, so we collaborated with Abbott Northwestern uh, Hospital in Minneapolis, and then we used Mayo Clinic Health System, so uh, Rochester Academic Center, and then included community and critical access hospitals, and really just looked to compare full dose versus reduced dose all to pay- place for PE. So we had, although it was over like eight to nine years, we had 90, 98 patients with full dose and 186 patients with reduced dose all to place. Um, so still not that, like, I think that shines some light that we're not using thrombolytics that often in PE patients. Uh, regardless, we looked at PE-related mortality and all-cause mortality as our primary outcome at seven days. And the biggest thing here is that we did an unweighted and weighted analysis. So I think it's not surprising that those that got full dose were sicker than those that got um, half dose. So more patients got in the massive group got the full dose um, compared to the half dose. So in our weighted analysis, after trying to control for some of those confounders, we found no difference in mortality in the full dose versus the half dose. However, for hemorrhages, we had uh, more hemorrhages in the full dose uh, was statistically significant in the unweighted group, but then didn't have significance in the weighted cohort, um, but still higher numbers of bleeding in the full dose versus the half dose group. So how cool, like not only what a great idea, because, um, you know, including critical access rural hospitals, those that are going to be more likely to use that, not have those resources to do things. So does your center utilize like catheter directed thrombolysis or thrombectomy, like specifically at, at Mayo Clinic? Yeah, that's a great question. So Abbott Northwestern being a big academic center and then Mayo Clinic Rochester have access to that. But to your point, our critical access and community hospitals don't, which is why we got some of the patients, I think, still getting thrombolytics. Uh, But in our practice... Uh, we use thrombectomy and catheter-directed. Admittedly, my practice is mostly in the ED now, so they're making that decision in the MICU, but we are using less like systemic thrombolysis because of those options we now have. 
So you brought up, and I, and I love that, the, with the question of alteplase dosing, my always thought is the acuity of illness compounds it, right? If you're more sick, you're more likely to say that the, the benefit outweighs the risk. So you talked about the weighted and unweighted analysis, but did just looking at the plain data, is that what you saw in this data set as well? Yeah, it's a great question. So 100%. The patients who got the full dose Um, I think over 50% were in the massive group. That full dose group also uh, statistically significant in the unweighted analysis had more vasopressor use, higher lactate, lower systolic blood pressure, higher respiratory rate, higher need for mechanical ventilation. So it's pretty clear that uh, that group was sicker. Um, I think it's not perfect, but we tried to compensate for that by doing this propensity weighting. But I think, you know, moving forward, like what are the next steps? It's the low number show it'd be pretty difficult to do like a randomized control trial and you're always going to have those biases of giving the full dose to the sicker patients. So did this study idea come from just the lack of consensus in the literature or was this something that you all maybe anecdotally saw whether it was critical access hospital people transferring into you like is this something you all saw or something that like clinical ideas started moving in that and then you executed it with your data here? Yeah I think it was we didn't know what to do so it was like conversation with Abbott Northwestern uh, they actually came to us with the idea um, and we're like what are you guys doing full dose versus is half dose. We don't know what to do. Should we be doing half dose for the massive PEs or is full dose better? So it's kind of like, I think it's pretty debated of what the right answer was and thought maybe we could find some evidence of what to do in this situation. Now, my only thing, because I, I, I tend to be the, the, the pro like 50 milligram, like the half dose, but have you put together, like the kits are different. Have you put together the 50 milligram? Like, have you had to open it and do that before? Yeah, great question. I haven't. I just, we've had like the 100 ml milligram vials and then I just use the 50. But that's what you have to do because the 50 milligram kit, it doesn't have the, um, the adapter. So you have to do it like you screwed something up and you're injecting everything in and you're praying it all doesn't squirt out from the back <laughs> pressure. It's miserable. So like, hey, was it Genetech? Whoever makes it, like, we need, get that adapter in there. We cut costs <laughs> other ways because it is frustrating because obviously when we're using this, crashing PE uh, yeah, patient, totally. right? Yeah, yeah, but that, okay, that does make sense. Yeah, okay, maybe that's the answer is just compounded from the hundies. Yeah. Okay. Um, so one of the big movements, right, we're talking about thrombolytics. We'd be remiss not to talk about our, because Hand up, I'm team tenecteplase, but we're not talking about acute ischemic stroke, right? We're talking about pulmonary embolism. So is there any data looking at like alternate dosing regimens of tenecteplase? Because I know there's some centers that have made switches to where this is maybe their only thrombolytic on formulary at this point. Yeah, also a great question. Also team tenecteplase. Uh, We've switched to also using tenecteplase and acute ischemic stroke. Uh, to answer your question first, then I'll get back to what we do in practice. Um, I'm not aware of anything. We'll dose like the tenecteplase based on uh, MI dosing for thrombolytics, and I'm not aware of any studies comparing it, but it's a great research question as centers start to move towards using more tenecteplase. We, since we have tenecteplase for acute ischemic stroke, that's actually the only lytic we have in our Pixis machines in the ED now. Um, so admittedly, we will uh, if I have like a cardiac arrest or a crashing patient that I need to give lytics to, I'm reaching for tenecteplase because that's what I have versus waiting for that 100 milligram vial of alteplase from a central pharmacy. And then just out of curiosity perspective, like 
in in your center, is there like a protocol for specifically what dose of Alteplase to give if you are giving the like in this scenario, or is it exclusively based on provider discretion and, and obviously multidisciplinary team input? Yeah, I was actually looking at that before giving this presentation yesterday to remind myself what the practice <laughs> is, because uh, we really don't the only time we're using it often in the ED is like that coding patient, which was excluded from this study. And, you know, they're getting admitted to the MICU and they're making that decision, but it's hundred percent provider dependent. It We are, you know, we list some contraindications or high bleeding risk, older suggesting using the half dose, but it's provider and like multidisciplinary team dependent, which yeah. I think is why we did this study. Like it's inconsistent and there's uh, discrepancies in the literature of what's best to do. I think that's common practice too. I think that's, I think that's the way that it probably is everywhere. Cause again, the person's sick enough, right? We're in critical care. More is always better, right? That's the, that's totally. the mantra. So, um, well, this is great, Caitlin. So glad that you were able to come on and, um, highlight your star research and everybody be sure to download that, um, article in critical care medicine published in January. So everyone can get it right now. Um, thanks so much. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Can't thank these three uh, amazing pharmacists for taking the time to join me. Uh, you know, for the listeners to know, they these three specifically carved out time from their schedule to record. Right, and conferences can be really busy, obviously, especially um, with Maryland. And obviously, the uh, audience and I are very, very grateful. So, uh, thanks to those three. Remember, uh, give me a follow at Pharmacy Two Dose for great updates throughout the conference. Even when a conference isn't happening, trial the day, all those things. So at Pharmacy to Dose, X, Twitter, Instagram, um, TikTok, Blue Sky, all the things. Such a great conference. Honestly, can't believe 2024 Congress ends tomorrow. But don't worry, large recap and one last mini review is coming. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast. The Critical Care PRN optimizes drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that is critprn.accp.com. The podcast provides general information only does not offer individualized medical or professional healthcare services, including pharmacy advice. The contents and materials in the podcast are not intended to be a substitute for inpatient pharmacy advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Use of the contents and materials on the podcast does not constitute a pharmacist-patient relationship. As a result, the information in and materials linked to this podcast are applied at the user or patient's own risk. Users and patients should consult their physician or personal healthcare professional. Users or patients should not ignore or delay seeking care because of something they heard on this podcast. In case of an emergency, the user or patient should contact their physician, call nine one one, or go to the nearest medical emergency facility. The views and statements expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests should not be interpreted to reflect the official position or policy of ACCP or the Critical Care PRN. ACP and the critical care parent disclaim any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or any other damages, including without limitation, loss of profits arising out of any use of reference to, reliance on, or inability to use the podcast, its contents, and materials.